Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. So we are... Continuing on with our look at the book of John, we, uh, last week, in just a few sentences, we, uh, we saw that John describes Jesus as the Word, right? Because everything that he said and everything that he did was the Word of God. And we saw that in him is life, that God gives life, not just physical life, but spiritual life, eternal life. And we saw that he is the light and everything is illuminated because of him and you know apart from him there's no word of god apart from him there's no life apart from him there's no true understanding and all is darkness and so jesus is the final decisive word of god now i was thinking about this the other day and you know it, really how we handle the bible right what we call the bible the word of god is really going to be a reflection of how we handle christ because the two are inseparable like you can't you can't divorce a relationship with with christ from the bible it's impossible and so if if you handle this just kind of flippantly, then your relationship with Christ is going to be handled flippantly. And, um, you know, that, that when it comes to actively engaging in the Word of God, um, it needs to be handled with care and, and reverence. Uh, because because this, is, this is God's Word to us. Um, we can say, oh, it was written by these humans. God spoke to those people and delivered His decisive, His final Word to us. And so... As we're reading the Word of God, we don't just read it just to read it, to check off our, our boxes. I had a, a teen study when I was uh, in high school, and in the back there were books, of, like you had uh, each book of the Bible, and then there were box, boxes that had each chapter of the Bible, and I would just read it, and I would check it off because, oh, I, like, I got to check off that box, right? And I wasn't reading it properly, and, and we don't study God's Word just to do it, and we don't study God's Word just to gain some knowledge that makes us feel superior to other people. Oh, I know more than that person. I'm a better Christian than that person. That's not why we... The the reason we study the Word of God, uh, Peter writes in in 2 Peter 3, um, that we are to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? And as we are reading the Word, that's our goal. That's our end goal is to grow in grace and knowledge. It means is that the more that we read it, the deeper understanding we get of what Christ has done for us. And there's just a greater awe, a greater respect, a greater reverence, right? A greater um, a desire to, to walk in relationship with him. But then, so we grow in grace, but then we also grow in knowledge that we have doctrinal uh, stability. Like James says, that we're not tossed about like every, like a wave in the ocean with every new teaching that comes about, right? That, oh, that we're able to listen to what is said, and we're able to decipher, hey, does that line up with the Word of God? Or is that what, you know, like I said, James would call like a new teaching. And we're just, oh, that sounds good. This sounds good. But we grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. So that's, that's, that's why we should be reading the Bible and studying the Bible. Um, my plan for tonight is to get through verses 6 through 18. That is two and a half times more than we got through last week, right? All right. And then next week we should... We should wrap up uh, chapter one. So we are, we're getting the ball rolling. But before we do, um, we have prayed a lot, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm just going to pray just that kind of one of our prayer points that our hearts would be open as we read. Father, 
um, what a privilege it is to be able to study your word, um, to be able to open the book that you have given to us. And God, I pray that as we study your word, um, new truths and, and, and new insights uh, come alive like they never have before, and, and that we grow in grace and knowledge of who you are. Uh, we thank you for what you're going to do in this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we uh, are looking at John chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. And last week, you can go back to that first slide, Sammy. Yeah, last week we saw that uh, um, John's purpose, written in John 20, 31, is that, that we might believe. And so by believing in Jesus, we'll have power, uh, we'll have life by the power of his name. That's John's purpose, to persuade believers. And we're going to kind of keep going back to this because as we see um, in this, these first 18 verses, um, John is making that really clear. So let's read verses 6 through 18 real quick. It says, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowd, this is the one I was talking about when I said someone is coming after me who is far greater than me. For I... Uh, far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance, we all have received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. As we're looking at the, the first few verses of John, in the first five verses, John gives this incredible picture and description of who Jesus is. He was with God. He is God. He creates things. He's life. He's light, right? These incredible picture of who Jesus is. In the very next verse, in verse 6, you've got someone else coming to the scene, and you, you see a very distinct contraction there, or, or contrast there, about John the Baptist. And so we've got these, 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 these uh, opposites here, almost, right? That, that Jesus is God. Verse 6 says that God sent a man, Right there, John's awesome, he's great, but he's a man. That Jesus is the light, but John came to testify about the light. That Jesus came willingly, that God sent John. Jesus creates, John is his creation. And so, John, the apostle John, the author of this book, right, he's, he's, he wants you to know that John's important, but he wants you to, like, when it, when it comes to comparing the two, that they're not even in the same ballpark. There's no, there's no comparison, Right? You've got Jesus, you've got the Word, and you've got John the Baptist, who's got an important role, but don't, don't put him on a pedestal that he shouldn't be on. And so, um, so it says that John is simply a witness to testify about the light. When you use, hear the word witness or, or testimony or testify, what, what comes to your mind? Court. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and so, no, no, that, that was, that's exactly the answer I was looking for. Thanks, D. I'll pay you for your $5 later for answering that question correctly. Um, so, we just mentioned earlier, what's John's purpose in the writing this book? Yeah, testify of who Jesus is. Right? And so, what John is going to do in this book is he's going to use the testimony 
of other people to point to who Jesus is, right? So he first uses the testimony of John the Baptist. We see that right here in John chapter 1. And then in in John chapter 4, he uses the testimony of the woman at the well when she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? If you haven't read John chapter 4, spoiler alert, Jesus admits that in one of the few times he admits that he is the Messiah to this woman, right? Um, We see that John will use the the works of Jesus to testify about who he is. Um, You've got got in in John chapter 2 where where Pastor Sammy's going to walk us through Jesus' first miracle, turning the water into wine. Um, the healing of the lame man in John chapter 5, feeding of the 5,000 and walking on the water in John chapter 6, healing of the blind in John chapter 9, raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, then you've got the whole resurrection thing, which I guess is a work of good. No, um, but all these works are going to testify as to who Jesus is. Uh, John's going to use the Old Testament to testify as to who Jesus is, right? Pointing back, you see that in John 5, 6, 7, and 12, and you, you could spend the whole night looking at the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. Um, the crowds testify as to who Jesus is. John 6, 7, and 12. The Holy Spirit testifies as to who Jesus is in John 15. And finally, God the Father in John chapter 5. And so you've got all of these accounts that are pointing to who Jesus is, that are supporting John's purpose in persuading people to believe. And I want you to check something out. Let me ask you a question. What ethnicity was John? Jewish. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like any good uh, Israeli Jewish boy, um, he is going to know the law, right? They're, they're brought up in it. And so, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, listen to this, it says, But never put a person to death on the testimony of only one witness. There, must be all, there always must be two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, You must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so, John in accordance, accordance with the Jewish law, is saying, hey, you get one testimony about who Jesus is, may not hold up. But if you want to convict someone of something, I'm trying to convict that Jesus is the Messiah here, what we're going to do is we're going to bring testimony of John the Baptist, testimony of the crowds, see his work, right? He's bringing this evidence to his court case to support the case of who Jesus is. Um, and so he's saying, hey, don't just take my account for it, but look at all these other accounts that are supporting this, this man who I believe is the Messiah, right? All of these accounts are pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. As we're looking at John the Baptist, um, a few things about him, because he's, he's an important figure. Uh, one of the things in verse chapter or verse 8, where it says, John himself was not the light, he was simply a witness to tell about the light. Man, what a clear and concise, like, mission for any like Christian ministry, right? That, that we are not the lights, that our goal as Christ followers, as a church, um, as anything is to point others to the lights. And, you know, we have nothing to offer in and of ourselves, right? If I would say, hey, come listen to what I'm going to say, Michael, you don't know anything. You're right. I don't. Um, but my goal isn't to point to me. It's to point to Jesus, right? And that should be all of our goals as followers of Christ. And we'll see this next week when, when John is with his disciples and he says, there's the Messiah. And two of his disciples go and follow Jesus. John doesn't stop him. He's probably not offended because he's like, I, I, yeah, I don't blame you. Go follow him. That's the guy. You know, it's like, and we look at it and it's like, how many religious leaders would be good with losing followers? Right? It's kind of a weird thing, uh, the thing to think about. But John's like, no. Like my goal my, my purpose is to point people to 
the light, and there the light is. There, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, is what John says. Um, an interesting thing about John, um, technically speaking, John would be considered an Old Testament prophet. Um, and you're like, Michael, you're, you're, you're a terrible student of the Bible. The book of John is in the New Testament. I'm well aware of that. Thank you very much. Uh, what's the word testament mean? Covenant, way of doing things, right? And so you've got the Old Testament, which was the sacrificial system, the law. Absolutely. You've got the new, t- new covenant, which is what Christ died for our sins. When does John make his appearance on the scene? Before Christ died for our sins, right? And so, yes, this book is in the New Testament, but he is an old covenant prophet. And so um, when, when Malachi ends and Matthew begins, it's not like a two-week gap. It's a 400-year gap where there's nothing there's no prophecies. It's called the silent years. And then John comes on the scene and begins to tell his, his goal. He, he refers to Isaiah and he says, the, 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 the Pharisees are asking, hey, who are you? And he goes, I'm a voice in the wilderness shouting, prepare the way of the Lord. Right? And so Jesus died, right? And, and I think it's in Luke 22. Um, Jesus says, this is the new covenant that I'm establishing with you right, at the Last Supper. So John, in a sense, is like an Old Testament prophet. Um, in Matthew 11, uh, John, or Jesus refers to John the Baptist as the greatest man who ever lived, right? Speaking, humanly speaking, he's not, Jesus isn't throwing himself in that category. Humanly speaking, why, why do you think he refers to him as the greatest man who ever lived? Was it because he was wealthier? Was it because he was smarter? Was it because he was more powerful? Like, what's that? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Yeah. So that's what he was. Yeah. Pointing people to Jesus. He was the one. So all these Old Testament prophets get to say, get ready. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Like, get ready. And John the Baptist gets to say, hey, 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 he's there. There he is. Right. He gets to roll out the red carpet for Jesus. And what an, what an incredible responsibility like and and, um, and and privilege that John had in being that person that doesn't just get to say, hey, there's going to be a savior that dies up night. He's not Isaiah writing hundreds of years. He gets to see Jesus with his own eyes. And, and the truth is that each and every one of us have that, that same responsibility that we get to point people to Jesus. Right? And so, so John was the first person that said, there he is. We get to say, hey, he's come. Look what he's done. And so we need to be mindful of that calling, right? That we look at John's ministry, that we get to point people to the light, that we get to point people to Jesus. And it's not something that we should just be like, if I get around to it, but it's an awesome responsibility that each and every one of us have. And God, let us proclaim that truth with conviction and reverence. We're getting to verse 9. And so this verse is kind of interesting here. It says, the one who is the true light, who's that talking about? Jesus. Yeah, Christ. Exactly. Exactly who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And we'll stop right there. Is there anything in that back half? So we said the one who is the true light, Jesus, who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Does anything stick out about that verse? I think we've got it. Yeah, right there. So look at that. Anything that sticks out is kind of interesting. All right. We're not playing Jeopardy, so I'm just going to go ahead and answer. Um, what about the part that says who gives light to everyone? Does that sound kind of weird? He gives light to everyone, then no one has darkness. And if no one has darkness, then everyone's saved. And if everyone's saved, then everyone gets to heaven. Is that what we believe? No. Yeah. 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 
And so, so sometimes as we read that, we can be like, ah, oh, he gives light to everyone. Everyone's going to heaven, but that view isn't biblical. It's not what we believe. And that's not what this verse is saying, right? Even though the world, right, fallen humanity, we'll read in verse 10, like some of them reject the creator, right? His own people are like, Mm-mm, no, not at all. But everybody waking up, breathing, walking around is given a measure of light, a measure of, of what some theologians call common grace, which, is, which isn't, and some people get hung up on the word grace because we're like, we're saved by grace. And so if you're getting hung up on the word grace, you're like, no, there's no such thing as common grace. Like, it's all amazing. Then just think of it as the innate goodness of God towards his creation, right? Matthew 5.45 says that he gives sun, um, sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike, right? That, that God is, a, is an innately good God. And so you see people that are thriving, that you know don't love Jesus, that they have a measure of light, that there is God's grace, in a sense, is extended to all of us, that we all woke up, took a breath, walked, put on our clothes, and came to church tonight, right? And there's people that you know that don't love Jesus, that are walking around. And we see other verses, like Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to everyone, showers compassion on all of his creation. You see Acts 14, 16, and 17, in the past he permitted all nations to go their own way, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, he sends your, uh, you rain and good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. So, so it's, it's the love of the creator towards his creation. It's this common grace. And John Murray defines common grace or the innate goodness of God, however you want to phrase it, as the favor of whatever kind or degree falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hands of God. And so everyone has a measure of light. Um, Psalm 19 tells us that nature and sky point to a creator. Romans 1.20 tells us that everywhere we look, there's evidence of a creator. And so there's this, this revelation that doesn't necessarily bring us to salvation. I see a lot of people posting pictures of sunsets. God made this just for me. Whatever you think, that's cool. Um, but that, sal- that, that sunset isn't going to bring you into salvation, right? It might be evidence. It might be a measure of lights that God exists, that he's working, that he's active, but it's not a saving effect. And, and so um, the light does a couple of things, right? The light, either by the power of God drawing us to Christ, um, sends us into a saving relationship, right? What John would call a saving faith, the belief. Um, and you see, you see every part of the Trinity active in that, that Jesus is light, God draws us to the light, and the Holy Spirit helps us walk out that relationship. So every part of the Trinity, every part of God working in unison in our salvation. Right? Jesus is the light, God draws us to the light, and the Holy Spirit helps us walk out our sanctification, becoming more and more like Him. So, so the light does that, or the light exposes our wickedness, and we hate the light, we reject the light. Like it says in John three nineteen through 20, it says this, it says, and the judgment is based on this fact that God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for the fear their sins will be exposed. The light either saves us or it exposes our weakness, and we don't want to go near it because people are going to, we're going to be afraid people are going to understand who we are. What the Bible says, there's going to be a day where everything's going to be out, nothing's going to be hidden, so they're just prolonging the inevitable. But... Um, we see in, like I said, verse 10 and 11, that people reject, that his own people reject, and uh, they didn't want to go near the lights. 
But verse 12 and 13 throw the opposite side of that. So you've got people who reject the light, and then you've got people who accept the light and live in the light. And verse 12 and 13 says this, but to all who believed him and accepted him, right? there's that word believe, the, the, one of the biggest themes in the book of John, believe, believe, believe. Same comes from the same root word as faith. So what John is saying is a saving faith that comes along. So the world rejected him, but those that believed, um, he gave the right to become children of God. And they are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth from God. And so this belief, this continual abiding belief, not like a one-time prayer, right, but, but an ongoing trust in Jesus. And, and verse 13 reinforces the fact that it's not something that we can take credit from, right, that we had nothing to do with, that it is a gift from God. Um, it is, and what is that gift? It's the right to what? Become sons of, yeah, become children of God. Exactly. Um, and, and John makes it clear that, uh, that it was God adopting, right? That it wasn't, hey, um, you just waking up one day and being like, I don't know Jesus. Or you waking up and being like, man, I really need to get my, li- my life right. But it's God drawing you, God adopting you, God saving you so that we can't take any credit for it. In that adoption, we get to be the children of God. And John, um, he gives these three negatives. He says that it's not a physical birth. Jesus kind of goes back into this in John chapter 3. It's not from human will, and it's not from human plan. And so what he's doing is he's kind of ruling out a lot of what the Jews may have thought at that time, right? That I'm born a Jew, so I'm automatically one of God's chosen people. Yes. Um, I'm circumcised. That's a big one, right? Uh, I follow the law. I've got these religious customs that I do. And so John is kind of like smacking those down and saying, hey, no, 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 understand like, it's not on you. And so if you fast forward to today, it might be like, well, um, like, I prayed this prayer. I attended this church. I read the Bible. I was a good person. I did what I needed to secure my salvation. A lot of me's, a lot of you's, a lot of us's in that. And so John, again, just reinforcing the fact this is a gift from God, right? That, that he draws us. And what is our response? It's belief. And some people reject it. This weird dynamic, right? You're like, oh, you should have yeah, anything to do with your salvation, right? God draws us, and, and some believe and some reject. And that's just, and so what is, when we believe, we submit and we give our life to him. Like that's, that's, that's our part in salvation, is us believing in Christ. Um, and so verse 14 goes on to say, the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen the glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Man, this is the Christmas story, right? This is, this is John's version of the Christmas story. Luke takes like a whole chapter to talk about it. John like does a dozen words, right? That the Word became human and made His home among us, right? That the eternal has been conformed to time, the invisible has become visible. And this should be one of the most profound realities that we understand, the greatest miracle that God became man, and we've got to understand something in this. That while Jesus was walking on the earth, he was fully God and fully man. Right? That Philippians 2 might cause us to think that he somehow diminished his deity. Right? But that's not the case. Because anything less than him being God is not a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And so, so we've got to understand that 
that he is fully God, right? That, that Christ had all the privileges and rights and honors of being God, but he didn't cling to that, that it was a self-renunciation, that he willingly gave some things up. And we'll talk about those here because you're like, hold on. Um, but he really willingly gave some things up for a season. And so the emptying consisted of him becoming human, not him losing his deity, right? Not him becoming less than God. And that's part of the beauty of the, the, the incarnation of Christ is that, that God can do whatever God wants to do. And so what does God do? I'm going to be fully man and fully God in the person of Jesus. And so here's a few things that Jesus did give up. He gave up heavenly glory, right? That he, he gave up a face-to-face relationship with God. And he says that in John 17 where he's like kind of being like, I'm ready to get back to being with the Father, right? And so we see that he gave up heavenly glory. He gave up his independent authority, meaning that he submitted fully to the will of the Father, right? You see that in John chapter 5, Matthew 26, 39, and Hebrews 5, 8. That he says, not my will, but your will be done. I am submitting to the Father. Um, he set aside eternal riches and became poor, owned nothing. You read that in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Um, and for a time, he gave up a favorable relationship with the Father in the moment that he was hanging on the cross and the sins of the world were placed upon him. Where he says in... Um, Matthew 20, or 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Um, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who no, knew no sin to be sin for us. And then Galatians 3, 13, where it talks about cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, that, that Christ took that. And so for a time, he gave up that favorable relationship with God. Um, and that's, that's the beauty of the incarnation, where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Fully God, fully man, um, unblemished, untainted, undiminished deity in human forms. And what I love about studying the Word of God is learning new things and having new things pop up. And, and, and I've, read, um, I've, I've read the Bible a lot, and for whatever reason, studying it this time, and I made it through pretty much without getting choked up, but I came to that fourth thing, that he gave up a favorable relationship with God. And I was in the office, and I think Sammy and, and Justin and Joey, and I was just like, turn away, and I was like, mm, get it together, right? It just hit me. Like the weight of what he did. So, moving on. So you get to uh, the rest of that verse. That God, the word became human and made his home among us. Some translations say that he, he dwelt among us. And this is, a, this is a really cool word because in the Greek it's, it's the word skeno. And it means to fix one's tabernacle. And if you look in the Old Testament, what did God's people do before they built the temple? As they were traveling around, what would they do? they would build a tabernacle and God's presence would reside in the Holy of Holies. And then when it was time to move, they'd tear it down and they'd set up shop somewhere else. And God's presence would reside there. God's people building his tabernacle. But this word is really cool because it tells us that it's not God's people building his tabernacle. God is the one establishing his tabernacle in the form of Jesus, right? All the power and the fullness of God resting in the human body of Jesus, that it's not God's people, but it's God establishing his tabernacle. And so this verse is, is really, is, is, a, is pointing a lot to the Old Testament. Um, you see that it says, uh, the word became flesh, um, that God established his tabernacle here. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we've seen the glory, the glory of the Father is one and only Son. In Exodus 34, verse 6, this is God speaking and he says, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love 
and faithfulness. What is Jesus full of? Unfailing love and faithfulness, right? A lot of Old Testament significance in this verse. Um, and then we go on to see that so we have seen the glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Looking at that term, only begotten Son, you've probably heard that a lot as you're reading John 3.16, right? The God so loved the world, he's in his only begotten Son, his one and only Son, however you want to like phrase it. The word is the same in the Greek, the monogenes, and it means... Um, it means one of its kind, the only one of its kind. And so, so we are adopted into the family of Christ. We are the children of God. Jesus, however, is one of a kind. All right, so a terrible example here. I have, um, Aubrey and I have a son, um, half myself, half Aubrey. Someone would be like, he's a lot more you than he is, Aubrey. Um, squirrely little two-year-old named Owen. Uh, I can adopt other people, other kids into my family. I can write them into my will. I can give them the rights of being my children, right? I can feed them and take care of them and give them gifts and treat them just like they're my own. But Owen is one of a kind, right? He's the only one of his kind. Thankfully, the world cannot, cannot handle a lot more of them. Um, but that's what it's saying about Jesus, is that he is the monogenes, right? The one of a kind, the unique one. And so we'll read that word again at the end of this, the unique one. Same thing, the monogenes, right? The only begotten, monogenes. He's the one of a kind, right? We have been adopted into God's family, and Romans 8.29 tells us that Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. And so, yes, we're all part of God's family, but Jesus is the unique one. John 15, or 1.15 says, John testified him about when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. Right? John is, is kind of echoing what, what the apostle wrote at the very beginning. Right, He's just kind of given a brief, like, here in unison, they're all working together, a very brief synopsis of what John said in verses 1 through 5. Right, This guy is greater than me. Why? Because he existed long before I did. Right, when, What does John write in John 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. John, uh, John the Baptist, he, hey, this dude has been here a lot longer than I have, and he's way bigger and better than me. Why? Because he's God. And so John is just kind of encapsulating that same, um, that same callback, if you will. Uh, verse 16 says, From his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing after another. Um, Paul gives a, a much more elaborate definition of this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. He says, So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured on us who belong to his dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he's purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son, and forgave us our sins. He showered us with kindness along with all wisdom and understanding, right? Paul is giving an even more in-depth look at the grace of God, that it's not just a sprinkling, right? I think of like a little eyedropper where you're just measuring like two drops, right? That, that Paul is telling us and John is telling us, right, from his abundance, we've received grace and blessings. Paul, or Paul is telling us that he hasn't just lightly sprinkled, but he has Poured. That word poured is the idea of charitable giving, right? You are um, abundantly giving. He says he is so rich that he is overflowing with kindness, that he purchased us, uh, purchased our freedom, that he has showered us with kindness. So you see the extravagance of God's grace here, right? And that's what, what John is talking about. And we just went to Paul to kind of give more an in-depth look, that it's not just a little bit like a measured, but it is a lavish amount coming from his abundance of grace, um, and then John wraps up the chapter talking about the law. The law was given through Moses. Some people think the law is a bad thing, right? That I'm not living under the law, I'm living under grace. 
And, and when God gave the law to Moses, you have to understand, and we're, we're wrapping up with this, that, that when God gave the law to Moses, it was a pivotal moment in the salvation process because what the law did was it established God's standard, right? It, it put on display in writing God's holiness and his holy requirements. And no one was ever able to live up to the law. But so many people think the law was bad. The law wasn't bad, it was the beginning. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 5, that our righteousness has to match that of the Pharisees? Is that what he said? No. He said it has to exceed that of the Pharisees. And here's what the Pharisees missed. They missed what the law was intended to do, which was draw them closer. They, they, they rested on the fact that I obey the law better than you did. And if you screwed up, I was going to let you know. And so when it came to following the law, they did really good, but when it came to like the heart of the law, they totally missed it. And so Jesus is saying, hey, the law is not a bad thing. I came to fulfill the law, right? That every, every I is going to be dotted and every T is going to be crossed. Like I came to fulfill the law. And so he says, your righteousness has to match that. No, it has to exceed that of the Pharisees. And here's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, that our righteousness is found in Christ. And so when, when, when Christ was hanging on the cross, God saw you. But when now, because we're living in Christ, when, when God sees us, he sees Christ. And so there's this idea that, man, on our own, I can't do that. But in Christ, I am able to have the righteousness that I need to stand justly before God. And so the law isn't bad. It's the beginning. Jesus finalized the law. He was the final sacrifice that was required. And now we're able to live in that righteousness and exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And now, is that an excuse to go on sinning? No. Good gosh, we'd go into Romans on this. But um, that's not an excuse to go on sinning, right? So, oh, grace is just going to abound more and more. No, that's not why we do this, right? It's so that we can continue to become more and more like Christ, not take advantage of the sacrifice that God made. And so um, we've got to understand that's uh law wasn't bad. It was the beginning. Jesus fulfilled the law. And because of that, doesn't mean we have to do whatever we want, but we are covered by grace. So anyway, um, didn't plan on going that way, but there we are. And then uh, John wraps up, no one has ever seen God, right? You've seen the Old Testament. People saw glimpses of God. Um, they, caught, they caught flashes of him, but they never saw God. God told Moses, hey, you can't handle me at, at all this, right? And so he shielded him. He saw like the backside of God and like his, his face was changed. Like He had to put a veil over his face because... Israelites like, we can't look at all that right now. But he had an encounter with God. But John says, the unique one, the monogenes, right, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us, that, that God has come to earth, that we have been able to light, lay eyes on him in the form of Jesus. And so it's at this point where John has finished his prologue, and he's going to go into the rest of building his case. And if you guys watched Reading Rainbow as a kid, LeVar Burton would say, but you don't have to take my word for it, right? Um... And so John's kind of saying the same thing. Here he is, but now what we're going to do is we're going to look at all these other people and all these other instances that, that build up who Jesus is. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, it's 7.36. If you guys have some questions about what we just talked about, I know I read out of Exodus and Deuteronomy. Please do not ask me about the Levitical law and the cleansing of boils or whatever might be in there. Um, but if you have any questions about what we just talked about, I will do my best to try, and if not, no worries. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that we are able to grow in grace and knowledge. God, and I pray that as we walk out of here, God, we understand more about you and we become more like you, um, that you would continue to transform us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
We hope that you enjoyed this message. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at info at foundationschurch.tv or visit our website at foundationschurch.tv. Thank you.